0: Synthetic content is not an avatar. Think of a deep fake intended for benevolent
1: purposes. In 2020, what does data actually mean? Where is data going? I'm Amy Webb.
0: I'm a quantitative futurist, a professor of strategic foresight at NYU Stern School of Business, and the founder of the Future Today Institute.
1: Our second guest and guest co host is Dr. David Bray. I've been
2: executive director for what's called the People Centered Internet Coalition. I am now with the Atlantic Council
1: at a new project that we'll share more details with in about two or three weeks. We're talking about data. Why is this such a crucial and pressing topic for twenty twenty?
0: I think it's useful though to think of data within the realm of some context and and uh, historical perspective. Um, you know, we tend to get. Collectively very excited about things. And usually that excitement begins with some misunderstanding and typically a significant amount of optimism um, regarding what's possible. And that's usually followed by uh, some misdirected fear around what it could all mean. And then at some point, that hype cycle levels out and people start talking about scaling and business opportunities and the like. So I think um, the probably as we begin 2020. Um, that hype cycle has started to uh, has started to even out a little bit. And um you know we're we're going into a new decade with a number of technologies capable of mining and refining um data in real time that will lead to all kinds of potential opportunities, and, of course, risk. Um the other piece of this, of course, is uh, generating and collecting all of that information using next generation um, collection technologies and, and network infrastructures. I think that that's if you're hearing constantly the word data, big data, data lakes, you know there's lots of different permutations, um, this is why I would just sort of as we kick off this conversation, note that having a talk about data is a little bit like having a talk about, internet, right? I mean, it's a sort of like an umbrella term that sort of means many different things. So, this can be a sweeping, far-ranging, wide-ranging conversation.
1: But, David, why has data taken on these attributes of the hype cycle that Amy was just describing?
2: I'm building on what Amy said, I completely agree that, that we go through waves of both um, Euphoria and then misdirected anger and fear. And then finally, we figure out, it, it, in fact, the research shows it takes between 10 to 25 years to really understand what anything new really means. And, and so, why are we seeing this now? Well, for the last two decades, we have been steadily increasing the number of people connected to the internet, um, but also devices connected to the internet. Uh, 2013 was a year where there was the same number of people uh, in the world as there were network devices in the world. 7.1 billion network devices, 7.1 billion people, and it doubled two years later. So We're now at about 40, 45 billion network devices on the planet relative to 7.6 billion people. Uh, The amount of data on the planet that's now being produced by these devices is also doubling about every two years. Uh, 2013, we saw about 4 zettabytes, 4 billion terabytes of data on the planet. By 2022, which is only two, two two-and-a-half years away, we're going to see 96 or 100 zettabytes worth of data, 100 billion terabytes, which some say is actually three times all the conversations we've ever had as a species. (coughs) So We are drowning in data, and the question is, what can we do with this data for good? What can we do with this data for not so good? Um, How do we even make sense of it? Are there going to be people left behind if they're not literate in how to use this data? And we really have these three doors. Do we have a world in which these sensors and technologies and data result in surveillance capitalism? These sensors and technologies result in surveillance states, or do we find some way of data dignity where we still have choice in this new world going forward?
0: There are some real world challenges that I just don't see being addressed in in meaningful ways. Um, data governance. So you know, David's right, uh, and he just gave terrific background on some of the challenges that are upcoming. I do not see strategic conversations happening about data governance in the right places, in the private sector, and the public sector, at the highest levels. Um, and I, I totally get that data governance may not sound like the sexiest topic to uh, center your <laughs> center a meeting around, um, but it's important because you know at some point the people who make critical decisions about. Our country, know, our companies and our infrastructure, um, all of the services and devices and the tools that we use, you know, at, at some point there are going to have to be conversations around things like hygiene, data hygiene, um, data storage. I mean, we're talking, you know, like like the 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 numbers that David just mentioned, you know, are to some extent incomprehensible. It's hard to wrap your head around that. And we also have some storage issues. So whether you're a government person, uh, local or national, um, or you're a business, you're going to have to start making decisions around um, how that how those data are stored, because that involves personal information in some cases and proprietary information. But there's also a cost associated, um, and how you're going to continue to maintain those data going forward as our systems and devices change, and we. Move more and more into ambient computing. Um, you know who gets access uh, as the geopolitical landscape changes. Um, who's sovereign? Like where is that? Who has sovereign domain over that data? So so who gets to decide what are done with those data? You know and and if you want to get even more complicated, what about the, the packet transfer? So I mean, this is kind of the crazy thing we think about airspace overhead as planes are flying across and around countries. Well, what about the transfer of data? You know, are there domain issues as a packet moves? I mean, we're we're moving into, in some ways, sort of paradoxically, a much more exciting, easy living situation where so much will be automated. But on the other side of that are many complex issues that I don't see being addressed head on, or worse, I see being Um, sort of shoved to the outer fringes of an organization where just maybe the IT department works. This is nothing against IT departments. I like IT people a lot, um, but they alone shouldn't be making these kinds of
1: uh, governance decisions for an entire organization. Amy just mentioned IT people. As she was talking, I thought to myself, oh, great. You know, we've just covered, uh, she's just turned all of us into IT people and at the same time she's gone to the other extreme turning us into metaphysical analysts because of the range of issues so how do we even grapple with that this is a revolution that 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 makes what happened
2: with the printing press and the availability of books to everyone pale in comparison this is like that times 10 in an ultra compressed period of time <clears throat> and you're absolutely right i mean the good news is IT is becoming more and more strategic. It used to be a function that only reports to chief finance officers and then later chief operating officers. And now, if you are not a data literate CEO, odds are your company may not still be in existence five or six years from now. So, this actually has to be board level conversations, CEO level conversations. And you're also right, um, Michael. The question is these are issues that need to be discussed that impact local cities, states. Nation states, even international. And the trouble is, I'm not sure most of our politicians are even digitally literate enough to have these conversations. And it's happening all at the same time and it's causing massive disruption.
0: My favorite slash least favorite story of 2019 took place uh, in the city where I'm currently talking to you from. So I, I have a house in Baltimore and, and also in New York. Um, and the city of Baltimore was locked out for months. Because hackers had exploited a vulnerability and um, you know had had effect there was no um, there was no forward thought, and there were no resources devoted. Baltimore is not a tiny town, it's a huge city it's one of America's largest cities, and not for a few days, not for a few weeks, but for a few months, citizens could not pay their parking tickets they couldn't pay their water bills and I know that that doesn't sound like the end of the universe except um you know the the water bill that couldn't get paid doubled so so and not everybody's great at managing their finances so a whole bunch of people got hit with a very large bill that you know not everybody was able to pay right away um, you know and it's it's more than a minor inconvenience for a lot of american cities cash flow is an issue um so these are and we could between the two of us you know david and i could probably rattle off 100 examples of the over the past year of totally preventable problems, if somebody was really thinking about the future of data. Last thing, uh, I was over the summer at MIT at a symposium for people who work in executive leadership positions within data, so chief data officers, you know. And it and what really struck me, it was a little more academic, but there were plenty of people from the corporate world and, and from government as well. It just struck me that um, a there's there's not enough people. With enough leadership training, who also have backgrounds in data science, um, and that also a lot of the data capabilities are still housed within areas like marketing. you know data is not just predictive analytics um, this we're talking about core functions of, of businesses and and of um, of organizations so I, we are beyond I think the point at which we can have a convert, you know, casual conversation, people need to start thinking much more holistically and specifically.
2: I agree. And I think, actually, it points to we're going to have to even almost see this as, you know, I don't think any of us took any courses in middle school or elementary school that were about data. But I think we need to start doing that because it's going to become almost as important as being able to write and do math is to be data literate and understand it. But this is also means we got to play catch-up for those that have not had that training. And if this is relegated just to the people that are data scientists and data officers and IT people, the challenge is, as Amy indicated with Baltimore, I mean, Baltimore, the IT department probably asked for more money and they were probably turned down because no one saw the value of doing it. And so, right. you know, it looks like it's the IT department's fault, but in fact, if nobody funds it, eh, you know, it's, it's a, so I think the question is, how do we play catch up in this period of massive change? And the meanwhile, you've got Europe with general data protection regulation with that approach. You've got China, which is now drafting possible laws that will say it'll be illegal to have any data in the country that is not available to that government, even if you're a foreign national or a foreign company. And I'm actually waiting for the train wreck between GDPR and China to happen and see how that plays itself out.
0: And California. We even have a state by state system in the United States that's not consistent, which again, if you, as a decision maker, are not really paying attention to this, you know that the costs of compliance could go through the roof uh, for your
2: organization. So, and then on top of it, you can just imagine a little pop up that says, "Are you a Californian? Are you uh, from Europe?" And, and of course, now if you have little pop ups when anyone visits a website, that's an easy phishing attack too, and it can right. just be really bad. So, yeah, it's it's going to be messy, um, but it has to be solved because this is now commerce in some respects. Um, I would even venture to say this interesting proposition, which is data is money and money is data. The question is, of course, who is making that money? Is it only in the hands of a few? Is it something where we can benefit? You see Europe and you see UK now talking about sending what they call data trusts because the reality is my data by itself is not that valuable, but if I'm willing to put it towards a data trust that keeps it fairly anonymized but it can be used for health research or things like that as part of a larger aggregate with another million people that could actually produce revenue that could actually become sort of an equity that pays me on an annual basis for the ROI that was brought in from the data that I contributed to mm-hmm. and this is so so i think this is where recognizing the role of banks the role of public institutions private institutions this will change the world in the next decade
1: this is a show about data trends in 2020 so let's start identifying some of the the key trends so what's going to Happen, Amy? You want to? You want to jump in first?
0: One of the sort of surprising key findings for for this coming year has to do with synthetic data, and I say surprising because we've been covering things like synthetic content and synthetic um, synthetic data for a while, but we've just started to see some inflections where and some crossovers where um, I think. Synthetic is going to be something you're going to hear a lot next to data going forward, and that ranges from things like synthetic genomic data, synthetic content. You know, synthetic content is not an avatar. Um, it's ju- it's think of a deep fake intended for benevolent purposes. So, uh, characters that um, act out in a generative way, like a soap opera uh, timeline, something like that. Um synthetic media in general, so this would be um, algorithmically generated uh, music compositions or art. Um, so you know, and then synthetic data in general. Um, and there are some reasons why we're starting to see this, uh, especially within the health sciences and and medical space. We have a lot of restricted regulations in the United States, but things like AI show quite a bit of promise um and because there isn't a system yet to enable everyday people to uh, knowingly, and with all of the information that would be needed to make a good decision, uh, to give others access to de-identified data. Um, big, huge tech companies are having to generate synthetic data sets so that they can test and run their models. There's good and, and bad with that. But, anyhow, we're, we're starting to see a lot in the synthetic space. Um, we're also seeing a lot of uh, diagnostic capabilities, whether that has to do with the um, devices in your home uh, determining when firmware upgrades are needed and making some of those decisions using the data around them, um, or the enormous number of home diagnostics that are going to wind up in our bathrooms and our kitchens uh, at some point. Uh, notice, you know, notably because. There is so much data um, ripe for collecting. And because it's the those data that are necessary to make decisions, scoring is another huge finding and a big area of our uh, research this year. Everybody is being scored. It's not all nefarious, but it's definitely not all transparent either. So those are some big areas uh, which then lead to things like traceability and transparency going forward. There's a lot of confusion, certainly a lot of conversation around what can and should be done. Um, and Then, of course, this sort of enormous rush to try to capitalize on um, doing something with all that data, whether it's mining it to make predictions or protection, protecting other people. Um, there's this crazy company called DID. It's an Israeli. David knows exactly what I'm talking about. They do a bunch of things, but one of the prototypes uh, that exists is a way to create a deep fake for a famous person that looks slightly different. So, like, David's a famous person. I could deep fake him, but add a mustache. David doesn't currently have a mustache. Right. So, you know, like, you can think of this as somebody taking a really popular song and tweaking the melody just a tiny bit to evade copyright law. So, the other kind of crazy thing that we're seeing is the emergence of that. Um, So, it's it's a very different world that we are all headed straight forward into.
2: You know, In some respects, synthetic data may provide a way that we can still remain individually anonymous, but our data can still have value if we can make sure the synthetic data is representative enough and diverse. But, we should also recognize that synthetic data can also be used for, whether it be for paraditic purposes or more malevolent, uh, the equivalent of deep fakes for data. And so, I think that's something to be aware of. Um, in terms of three things that I would say that would add to what Amy talked about, I think the, the, there needs to be conversations about the future of data and the future of work at the same time because, in the past, if you bought an ERP system or you bought a manufacturing system, as that IT system got older, you depreciated it because it was older and it was out of date. But Data is actually the reverse. You don't want to buy that AI that has had no training whatsoever. You want to buy that one that has five years' worth of the data fed to it or 10 years' worth of data, almost like fine wine, because it'll actually be better at its job the older it's been trained as opposed to new. And That blows up accounting models. That blows up how do you work with it, how do you compensate workers if what the workers is doing is training the machine, but in the end, it actually means they no longer have to do the tasks they're doing because they've now trained the machine. So Future work and future data, I think that's key for the next one to two years, trying to sort that out. Uh, second is this idea of what's called three-factor authentication with data. So it's not just that you have you, you you we know it's you and it's data about you. It's actually a question of have you given your consent to that data? And it's actually something that you can actually do as a continuous basis. So if you turn off the app on your phone, just because they know you're there doesn't mean you've given consent. And so that data, in some respects, can be cryptographically made so it cannot be traced back to you. So It's this idea that maybe we can actually seize back some locus of choice and control in this era by saying, it's not just about that you know it's me, but have I actually said you can know it's me and have that be a continuous on-off or resostat that I can say, you can know I'm over 21, but you can't know my specific age, something like that. And Then, finally, I actually, have a pa- I did a paper um, in October with MIT Sloan talking about the need for what I would call data ombudsman or ombuds functions. And It's like, who in the organization is responsible for making sure the data is useful, is actually appropriate for the question we're asking, is diverse, and then when it's fed and actually conclusions are made from it or decisions are made from it, that those decisions themselves are one that the organization is comfortable with if they're ethical and there are things we should do. I mean, you've seen a lot of AI ethics conversations, but I think we actually need to talk about data first before Mm -hmm. we rush to AI.
0: That's right. and Nothing drove that point home. As much over the past couple of weeks as watching everybody share on social media their statistics. So think about all of the, the different connected services that you use, whether it's Google Maps sending you out a map of all of the, the locations, the, the number of cities that you've been to, or Spotify telling you what you listened to over the past decade. Um, you know, it's what I think is I don't think the average person is all that into the quantified self movement. Um, I think Uh, However, we are all uh, susceptible to nostalgia and to ego. There's a piece of this that feeds our ego. and What really concerns me going forward is that um, we are exchanging cool graphics and maps for the more challenging questions like, what does it mean that Google was able to send me a neatly tailored data visualization of literally every place I've been? What are the broader downstream implications of that? And to data's or to David's excellent, excellent point, um, we need to have more public conversations. Um, a data on in an organization is great, um, and especially if that person is having more conversations with everyday people to help them understand what's at stake.
1: We have a few questions from Twitter. Sal Rasa asks, "How do you develop a culture?" Of becoming aware and respecting these data issues you're just describing, it seems like a really important issue.
0: You know, we primarily work with the executive leadership of Fortune One Hundreds, um, very large organizations, and everybody is grappling with the same question. Um, and that is because historically, a lot of these functions, again, like i uh, this is going to come out sounding like i am I am not uh, in love with the i t. Folks within organizations—that's not true. Um, I, I love the the IT people. I, I married an IT person, so um, so part part of the problem is that for too long data was conflated with the hardware um, that helped to power organizations. Um, they they really are different functions. And then the other side of this coin was that all of the data science was sort of relegated to marketing, um, and when you silo core some of your core business functions, you are not able to create a culture of transformation where some of these more pressing modern issues are at the fore. So, where I've seen success with organizations is when you know if a chief data officer position is created, um, that person uh, and that team. Sits almost as a connective tissue between all of the other departments and teams because you're going to need those people to deal with supply chain and logistics, or you know compliance. That's the other thing. Or the data function is housed within the compliance and risk function inside of a legal, uh, or, you know, part of the organization. So an easy way to spark transformation, maybe not so easily if if not everybody's in alignment, is to is to um, create a situation where. Those experts in data are sort of at the center, almost like a hub, and are working together with all of the other parts of the organization because everybody, you know, it should be much more of a seamless collaboration.
1: David, on a related topic, Arsalan Khan asks How can CEOs and boards even manage all of these issues because they're so complex and so detailed and there's just so much of it? that's coming at them with regards to data. So what should business executives do? I think
2: it's, it's it's recognizing that on the board, you wouldn't have anybody on your board that didn't know what a P&L profit and loss was or anything like that. I mean they, they, that that's something that you to get on the board you need to have that expertise. I'm not saying that everyone on the board should have the ability to go deep on data issues, but if you don't have anybody in the board that can go deep and it's not just one person, have have a handful then don't be surprised if your board is not going to be able to ask the right questions of the organization of the CEO. And then the CEO itself, the CEO themselves may not be able to ask the right questions too. So I think part of it is recognizing you're going to need people that aren't necessarily in the data weeds, but are able to understand the value of how it can be transformative for your company. Uh, the other thing that actually to build on um, the previous question too and, and build on what Amy said, I think there's a lack of data empathy. Um, and I think this, this, is, this is the big challenge, which is, how do you step back and say, my target audience might be 20-somethings, but maybe I need to think about those that don't necessarily even have the knowledge when they bring in this device or something like that to understand what the choices are with what they're being done. Um, one of the things that we, we've done with the people-centered internet, not on data, but on the internet, but the same model could be applied, is we've worked with Native American tribes about getting connectivity but we drew from public health because I actually had a master's in public health and I'm a big fan of the best way you bring about change is you don't rush in and say, I have the answers. It's actually listening and saying, what do you want? How do you want this done? So That's where I think companies may need to think about in their whatever function it falls under appropriately. Maybe it's the chief data officer. Maybe it's marketing. Maybe it's outreach. But Going to your stakeholders, your customers, and saying, we'd like to empower you with choice it doesn't have to be a billion choices but it's a, it's a menu of choices and then from there we can actually then allow instead of a one size fits all with data you can allow people different options i think the same thing needs to be done by local governments national governments i mean imagine if you actually had the choice which said you can either a have more data going in regularly in for filing your taxes versus just doing it once a quarter or once a year and if you file it in more regularly, instead of you having to file taxes the end of the year, we'll send you what we think you either owe or we owe you, and you can correct it if it's wrong versus you have to file your taxes. But if you don't want to, you can do the other way, which is the more conventional way of doing it. So it's giving choice architectures to people. I think that's going to have to happen, and that's only going to happen when you have all the way from the technical level to the strategy level to the board level, people that can speak the language of data.
1: Amy, we have another question from Twitter. Zachary Jeans asks, do you see a day when consumers will have a right to read all communications that c- companies and governments have about them and their data?
0: Technically, you are supposed to be able to do some of that now. So there are f- there are a handful of companies that act as intermediaries um, that effectively score you, score consumers. Um, and much like you have a Eco score, or you know, much like there are scores regarding your financial health, there are also scores that third parties can access to help determine algorithmically what you are likely to pay, for example, a roll of toilet paper. Um, you know, and, and so there's some dynamic decision making that happens in an automatic way as a result. Now, theoretically, you can contact these companies and request your files. The same way that you could contact the FBI and ask them for whatever files there are about you, but it's important to note that you know the 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 entire infrastructure of our digital era is um, is is not static. You know, we and so you know any given moment of any day um, that the numbers could be fluctuating and, and go up and down. So I, I actually think it's worthwhile to go back to something David just said a couple minutes ago. And that has to do with uh, choice. Um, I think the problem is that we have given up on uncertainty. Um, You know, as a futurist, I will be the first person to tell you that I cannot predict the future. It is not mathematically possible. There are too too many, like the math doesn't work out. Um, So uncertainty is okay, and my job is about reducing uncertainty. I think when it comes to um, a lot of these questions around data, my observation is that we try to impose our existing frameworks of thought um, when the very nature of the ecosystems we're talking about is, is dynamic and in flux and gonna continue to develop over a very long time. So we have to shift our thinking a little bit. Um rather than, you know. <laughs> I don't think we can regulate companies or tell companies they must follow these ten rules for transparency, or you know whatever. Um I think we have to create a situation in which we are incentivizing them to lean into uncertainty, to help us lean into uncertainty, to to offer more transparency. We haven't gotten into the operability question yet, and yes, there's a ton of data, but who actually owns it and how does it move around? Um you know, sort of. Putting people more at the center and at the focus. Uh, I, I think that there's plenty of money to be made if we f- figure out ways to incentivize um, people versus just their uh, monetizing, just the data and productizing the data.
2: I agree 100%. And in fact, on that note, um... As you both know, I try to be a good nonpartisan, and I've been nonpartisan, which means I have no top cover as a result because I don't pick a party. But I, I actually, here in the DC area, I've actually tried to bring together people from both sides of the aisle to try and figure out. I mean, we know there's polarization happening, not just in the United States, but also in Canada and Europe. And what's an interesting thing that I've heard from people from both sides of the political aisle that actually have done political games, I've never done one, is they say it's a lot easier right now to build data models. To convince a political candidate to win by galvanizing and polarizing their base, it's a lot harder to build data models about how do you win by the middle. And so here we are surprised that the world seems to be getting more and more polarized for Europe and the United States. And this might actually just be because we've not understood the data of. The, as Amy said, the data of uncertainty, and we're surprised then as we get more and more fragmented and more splintered in societies right with commercial companies, it's got to be that we find a way to motivate both them and customers to to pursue transparency in their own self-interest as opposed to something that we try to force because any any regime that we try and force will be out of date by the time we pass the law and they'll find ways around it by the time the laws' in effect That's
0: right. and you actually just made me think something I hadn't thought before, which is you know I again from an architecture point of view if you're trying to my academic background is economics and game theory i should just say really quickly so if i was trying to build a model to attract the most number of people to interact with something that i've published you know the the systems like facebook is i think still pretty clunky you know um, and so, it makes sense to me that the easiest way to reach people is by going to whatever the extreme is because the extremes tend to be binomials. Trying to approach the gradients, which I really do think much more like much more represents who we really all are, from a technical standpoint, is a heck of a lot more challenging, which now makes me think, you know, maybe we are not quite as, div- at least in the U.S., maybe we're not quite as divided as we all feel that we are. Uh, maybe it's Maybe this is, <laughs> you get bad data in, bad data in, bad data out, right? 100%. Maybe this is sort of like a, a bad data out problem more than it is um, a, a problem. You know, I, I think we, we are divided, but maybe we're not quite as divided as we're being told that we are.
2: So, I agree. I think it, it, it sells. I mean, we know the yeah. number one way to make something go viral on the Internet is to make it angry the number two ways to make it fearful and it's not to make everybody angry it's to make one group angry and the other group angry in response right right so it bounces back and forth so this is this is this is why data matters and why people say like it's not just the numbers i think the other thing is also we may be trying to apply 20th century geographical boundaries whether it's state or nations to as you said i mean where's the packet of information where's the data i mean if you really wanted to blow up the data regime or regulatory framework i actually had this idea about five years ago, and if anyone wants to do it, they're welcome to. What if you actually had your data stored in encrypted form, so ciphertext, but you had a system where the key to unlock the data changed the country it was in every 10 seconds? So wait, can you, can you describe that? More? You mean, wait, can yeah. You so the data is encrypted, right? Right. But the key to unlock the data is moved from country to country in electronic form every 10 seconds. Oh, oh like a tour guard for your like a proxy for your data. That's I know, kind of yeah. That's and, kind it, of crazy. If, and if you have to try and get a warrant to get the key to get your data, you're never going to know which country is in every 10 right. seconds.
0: So that's an amazing idea and a horrible idea. I know.
2: <laughs> I mean, exactly like all things technology is is is, is right. it, it 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 will empower wonderful things and awful things at the right, same time. Right, right, right. And I think that's why it's so important that we need to have data literacy within the public and within our leaders, whether they be private sector or public sector. If we don't have conversations about data now, yeah. uh, we will find that autocracies. We will be surprised, but we will find five to ten years from now that it's being used for autocratic regimes that are oppressive.
1: Why? Why do? Why should business people care about these issues? Their job is to make money. And you're saying, well, they should be focused on these broader societal issues and broad influence campaigns. Why? If your job is making money, you need to have
2: marketplaces to sell to. And if you're not careful and you don't, if you don't think about these issues now, you may not have open marketplaces five years. Sorry, David. That's not my problem. It is your board's problem if they're thinking beyond five years. And your board should be asking these questions of you. The other thing is also that if you don't figure out ways to thrive in this new regime, your competitors will, and so someone else will eat your lunch. And so it's not just the, the the desire to have open markets, but if you don't figure out, you know, you will be disrupted by someone else if you don't figure out how to be a disruptor yourself.
0: I can offer just a very pragmatic reason why this matters, um, and I could do this industry by industry. We don't have all day, so I will just start with health. And Medicine, the way that our current laws are written in the united states um, there's, HIPAA. there's something called HIPAA, and that protects the privacy of your individual health data, and as a result, there are many many hoops that doctors and healthcare providers have to jump through their forms there's a lot of technical requirements that they must observe and obey um, the Interpretation and application of HIPAA starts to get really confusing and murky when we're talking about big tech companies that are wading into the areas of health and medicine, but not technically performing health or medical uh, tasks. Right. So I'm thinking about Apple Watches and um, the the data, the personal data that's that's being delivered. Um, I'm thinking about Amazon and Amazon's connected devices, and um, you know the various components that go along with it. I'm thinking about Google, you know Google's devices, you know, and that's big tech. Um, there's a whole other area where there are startups um, in the sort of pop-up genomic space uh, in the UK. In one of the grocery stores there, um, recently there was a, a pop-up. Or you could get your DNA tested, and it would spit out nutritionally um, what's going to be best for you to buy. You know, if you were a doctor, it would be hard for. If you're in the, the medical community, it's going to be hard for you to come up with a lot of those same business applications. If I was anywhere in the pharmaceutical, uh, hospital, healthcare, healthcare provider, you know, which is a chunk of America's economy. I would be scared out of my mind right now if I didn't have a plan and some kind of good point of view. And by good, I mean comprehensive on what to do with all of the data that my organization has access to. And better yet, how to mitigate existential risk from those third parties that also have access, perhaps, to even more data than we do. I mean, I could go through industry by industry and give you specific stories. That relate to data and adjacently related um, companies or tech companies um, that that stand to totally destroy um, the the way that that industry operates over the next ten years. So, right. yeah. I mean, this it just from a very so yes, we should all care, uh, and I do uh, about the the greater societal implications. But from a from a P and L like a dollars and cents point of view. If you are not very closely watching what's happening, I can I I would hedge and 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 say that you're probably gonna find yourself in trouble.
2: On the health space alone, there uh, there's estimates that in the United States by itself, health data and that exchange is a $60 billion industry. So you can bet that there are people that want to come in and compete and disrupt that market. And the question is, do you wanna be the next blockbuster or Kodak or do you want to be something else?
1: Let me ask each of you to share your advice to business leaders in 2020 when it comes to data.
0: David made a really great point, which is that you know you don't have to if you're if you're in the C-suite, you don't have to wake up tomorrow and also be a data scientist. I don't think there are any expectations, but you have to have enough enough of a um, fluency in the lexicon to have informed conversations. And as the leader of an of your organization, you need to lead your data strategy as well and not simply relegate it to the few people in the organization um, that you know have some you know, understanding of what of, of of what data is and how to use it and everything else. Um, the here's a good question to sort of take back with you and just mull over for the next couple of days. Uh, you know, stop for a moment and think about the number of people that would be qualified to do something with the data that your organization has. See if you can quantify them. How many are there? Um, and then look at the industries and the companies that stand to disrupt you and ask the inverse. How many people on their staff do they have that could fill the functions you know of whatever it is that you're doing? Here's a specific example. Um, you know, if you were, let's say, a central bank, and you went through and and tried to count the number of uh, people who have degrees, PhDs, let's say, in data science, AI, computer science, those kind of fields, um, stop and, and try to figure that out, and then consider this: uh, Amazon, at last count, at least publicly, um, has more than 150 economist PhDs. Right? That should tell you something <laughs> about your. Future. Um, You have to be smarter about this going forward, uh, plain and simple.
2: So, real quick, I'll give three points for any CEO or C suite leader. First, um, it is worth polling your direct reports and, and, and core staff. Why are we really here? What's our business model? Because I don't think companies revisit that enough. And if you haven't revisited your business model in the last five years, let alone 10 years, it may be that you need to revisit why you're here and how your business model is changing as a result of data. I guess so the second point, which is ask, ask as many people as you can, which is how is our data strategy moving us forward faster and providing a competitive edge? Because there's a lot of places where actually they don't have a data strategy or what they're doing with data is holding them back when in fact it should be moving them forward. And then last, the third one, I'm going to have to ask this, Michael, just because it needs to be happened, which is apply the data golden rule. Which is do unto others as you would have them do to you. So if you were not at that company, if you were on the outside and you were a customer or a member of the public, would you want what that company' is doing
1: to be done unto you? And that's the three points. Great. And let me ask you each, then one final question, which is, what advice do you have for the public and for communities with respect to data in 2020? Amy, you want to start with that?
0: We're at a point where everybody needs to have a certain amount of digital street smarts, Um, and this this is something that you are better off developing now before uh, a lot of our ecosystems start to become extraordinarily complicated, more complicated than they are now. Um, and There are plenty of resources online to help you develop some of those street smarts and skills but the easiest single thing that you can do all the time is to ask, and and then what? So if somebody is sharing some funny app where you can see yourself age, um, stop and ask yourself, and then what? Right? Who who has access to this data? Uh, how do I know what's going to happen to it next? And and who stands to gain something besides me? Um, do that all the time. Um. Do that every time somebody asks you to smile for a photo, enter your thumbprint, give over your personal details, apply the same scrutiny to all of the cool new consumer gadgets and gear that you would if somebody, a stranger, asked you for your social security number. Right? If you, if you stop and do that over and over again, you will start to develop some digital street smarts that will certainly help you in 2020 and beyond.
2: Absolutely right. You need to develop uh, data street smarts be data curious, um, find out what you can online through, through different videos, and, of course, Michael, I've got to say, subscribe to Cxo Talk because it can help inform you as to what you need to know about data as well.
1: We've been talking with a lot of intellectual horsepower today with Amy Webb and David Bray. Thank you both. Amy, thank you for, for taking time to be with us today again. Thank you, Michael. It was great to be here. And, David Bray, thank you as well for, for taking your time to be here today. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Amy. It was a great conversation. Everybody, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. And you can get our newsletter, and we'll send you great information. We have fantastic shows coming up, so check out cxotalk.com. Thanks so much for watching, and have a great day.